The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. Welcome to the Misreading Scriptures series on the Thin Places podcast. Today, we're concluding our study of the book Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes by Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien. Over the last few weeks, we've been invited to look thoughtfully at the ways culture shapes how we read the Bible and how the Bible speaks to us. Today's discussion is a hard one. If you think about the book's iceberg analogy, we are deep, deep below the surface, and that means unpacking some beliefs about the way the world works that will just feel wrong. We're discussing where the center of God's will rests, and challenging some major assumptions we make about the ways God is at work all around us. So I invite you to jump into a small group study at St. Aidan's as we ask the question, what goes without being said about the center of God's will when we read the Bible? There we go. Okay. So, this is our, uh, our, our last study. Well, not our last study. <laughs> this is the last time. We're not doing Wednesday nights anymore. Okay, hey, thanks, bye. This is our last week uh, where we're covering uh, this particular book. So, the previous weeks we've covered all sorts of chapters on, on many ranging topics, but it all sort of comes to a pinnacle in tonight's study. So we're, we're asking the question, where do we find the center of God's will? Which really, if you, if you think about it in, in the way that it's presented, especially by, by the authors in this chapter, this is the, the linchpin for everything else that we do. Whenever we sit down to read scripture, ultimately, the question that sits before us is, where is the center of God's will? What is it that God is doing and saying to his people in his word right here? The word that I'm encountering, the word that is alive and enlivened by the spirit. What is it that is being accomplished by God right now? <clears throat> so all of the other things that we've, that we've done, all of the other things that we've talked about have sort of brought us to this point where we're going to ask this, this big question. And, the, and, and if you think again about the, the iceberg, right, this, this idea that we're, you know, it, with a, the worldview is so much larger than, than what we can see just on the surface of things. We're so far under the surface now that we're, we're going to start, we're, we're questioning things where we've never, we've likely never paused to say, there are other ways of thinking about this particular subject. Right? So the first week we talked about what? Yes. So the superficial ones. We talked about taboos and mores. We talked about language and 
ethnicity, right? Those were the superficial things. When you look at a culture, those are the things that you observe. We dove below the surface and we found... Honor, shame. Honor, shame. What else? Collectivism, individualism. Yes, what else? Time. Time, yes, the way that we talk about time. And then we went so far below that, that like, the water is changing color down here, all right? Like, it's, it's shifting from blue to black at this point. And we, we talked about what at, at these, these lowest levels of the iceberg? Virtues, vices. Virtues and vices. Uh, no, time was in the second section. Virtues, vices, and then last week, Gloria wasn't here last week. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yes, rules and relationships. And we're going to be revisiting all of those tiers in various ways tonight. Well, you can bring a book. The good students brought books, Jenny. <laughs> so tonight we're talking about where is the center of God's will located. But I wanted to start us off with an entirely different question. All right? You ready for it? What is your favorite passage of Scripture? I just read mine. This passage from Revelation, uh, in the, the 21st chapter of Revelation, the, the first, you know, nine or ten verses, like, that's, that's my favorite. Like, if I'm, I, that's, that's just it, right there. That, that's it. Like, every time I read that, I'm like, whatever else there is that's going on, there's, there's something to hope for. There's something to look forward to. And that there's, there's hope right now, because I can, I can look at the things that are happening, and I can say... There's a point, there's an end, there's a restoration coming. So, what, are you, what is your favorite passage of Scripture? Of all time? Yes. Favorite. Maybe it's like one verse, maybe it's a bunch of verses. Just say it. Just say it. Throw it out there. So far, you're the only courageous one. Oh, I'm not courageous. What is it? Psalm 19. What's that? It is. I have to look it up. <laughs> 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 you got, you got it. It's okay. Jesus. I know mine, but I don't know where it is. <laughs> I don't know where it is. You should have no tattoos. Oh, I actually really well, like it. It's the heavens declare the glory of God in the... Um, well, this one says, the firmament showeth his handiwork. But I don't the firmament showeth his handiwork. But it's... Okay. <laughs> I don't like it. Like, says the stars shows his handiwork. Like that whole. Yeah. This is when all things work together for the good. Yeah. Yes. But, yeah. I wanted to say that. Love God and are called according to That's not factual and why I read it wrong. And there's not really any hope in that whole paragraph. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know, just being honest. I like, I like, I mean, like the whole chapter, though. Hmm? I think I like basically the whole chapter. The whole, the whole of chapter eight? Yeah. The yeah. whole of chapter eight is beautiful. Mm -hmm. 
Matthew 11, 28 through 30. <coughs> Come to me all who labor and are heavy. Right. Laden now and give you rest. Huh? <laughs> Jeremiah's like, oh, that was mine. No. Drat. Full I, I, have, one. I have no idea where mine's at. So it's mine. Just go for it. But it's the, it, is, um, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. Ephesians. Ephesians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking is it was just Ephesians. A it's the Roman road, it, Jeremiah. What Wait, just what's your favorite passage? No. Oh, it can be, it can be a verse. Jesus mm-hmm. asked Peter why he forgot him, or if he loves him three times. Oh, okay. John, why? Why? Yeah. Focus of that third day song they did. <laughs> 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 oh, because <laughs> 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 Jesus, he denied Jesus three times, and Jesus asked him if he loved him three times, like he forgave him three times for it. Mm-hmm. It's a toss-up between the all things work together for the good mm-hmm. and don't laugh. But the one, I don't know where it's at, but he binds up their wounds. Okay. Greg's the outlier. Ecclesiastes two. I'm saying Old Testament. The whole the whole chapter. Whole chapter. Basically, well, everything is really really stupid. So <laughs> all of the things that you love time. suck. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. I'm good with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I really enjoy Job now. Like I'm working my way through Job again, and I'm starting to see things that I never noticed before. But 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 it's it's been like years and years and years since since I did that. We'll talk about Job some other time. But not not tonight. I read Job every Lent. Well, Do you? Not every Lent. Every other Lent. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. I've never heard of that. So here's, here's, the, here's what the authors are presenting to us about, about Western culture, okay? Western Americans tend to imagine that they themselves, as individuals, stand at the center of God's will. This is reinforced by the culture around them. It's reinforced by the family structures in, in the Western world. It's reinforced by the political systems. <clears throat> it's reinforced by... Uh, it, ev- everything around us, our, our theology, uh, both pop theology and and institutional theology, that this is this is what's true: is that we as individuals stand at the center of God's will. Okay. Now, part of that, the the authors point out, and I, I think truthfully, part of that has to do with the way that American culture developed, because America ultimately is founded by pioneers. The people who create the culture are people who are like, I don't like things the way that they are. I'm going to do something new that's also dangerous. And they just kept doing things that were new and dangerous. And so the, the kinds of people and the kinds of families and the kinds of relationships that established and were successful in, in, in this place are people who are rugged and are solitary and are independent. And so those, those values of, of, of fortitude and 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 strength and independence filter down into pretty much every part of our every part of our culture and we've hit on that previously in in other in in other uh chapters of this book right obviously the individualism versus collectivism chapter like that one was that you know is is huge but if you think about the way that mores are structured and the way that we talk about using time and like every single one of these chapters the, the things that we're hitting on are these core values that, that come out of the way that American, especially American culture, formed itself independent of and in contrast to 
the, the culture of continental Europe. Okay, so we're all kind of on, on the same page there. Just want to make sure we're, we're, we're there-ish together, okay? That same independent, rugged strength, you know, you, I'm, I'm an island sort of mentality, carries through generationally. Now, it looks different generally. generally my tongue stopped working. <clears throat> generationally. Um, but, it, but, but it happens over and over again in American culture, okay? So if you look at the, the silent generation or the greatest generation, you're going to find these basic traits being played out. And if you look at the baby boomer generation, you're going to find the same things, and you're going to find them in Gen X. Uh, you're going to find them in the millennial group. Like Every single one of these large generational brackets has its own version of these same traits. But all of these same traits are still at the core of all of those things. So, so these generations are having their own spin on American identity, but they are not on the whole, challenging the, the, the basic values of American culture, okay? And what is the basic value, all right? Western Christians are preoccupied with me. Preoccupied with me. Every question that we ask, every discussion that we have, is ultimately a discussion about... How does this affect me? How does this affect what I'm doing? How does this affect... Every question that, we've, that, that we have is ultimately a question about, well, what does this do for me? <clears throat> what do I get out of it? What do I, what, what do, what do I draw from it? What, what, how does this hurt me? How does this benefit me? How does this affect me? We're preoccupied with that question. That's the, the foremost question in our mind. And so it's natural to us to then read the Bible in the same way. When we sit down with Scripture, it is natural to us to immediately begin asking the question, how does this benefit or hurt me? How is this thing that I'm encountering about me? How does this affect me? Not, what's the story? Not, it, it, there's, there's no other like overarching questions happening here. It's just, how does this affect me? Now, there, there are, I want to read this. This is, this is a, 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 just a short quote. I'm going to read a longer quote later. But talking about um, religion in America, the authors point back to some earlier research on, on what's called moral therapeutic deism. And we've talked about that at St. Aidan's before because it, it just so succinctly sums up um, the, the American way of thinking about religion and thinking about faith. Uh, but Christian Smith is the one that coined this phrase. And he said one, one aspect of, of it, MTD, or moral therapeutic deism, is the assumption that the purpose of religious faith is providing therapeutic benefits to its adherents. The average teen, according to Smith, doesn't view humans as existing to do the will of God. Rather, they view God as existing to meet human needs. Smith goes on, what appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers <coughs> is centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, at peace. It's about attaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along amiably with other people. Need a friend? God is there. Looking for direction in life? God has a plan. 
Want a more fulfilling marriage? God has the answers. Okay? This is the way that Americans, generally speaking, now we're, we're, not, we're, we're not specifically talking here, generally speaking, this is what Americans do when they sit down in a pew on Sunday morning. I was reading, I, I was reading a study this week that just came out, and this is from the, uh, the Southern Baptists uh, in Kentucky. And they just finished a really big research uh, you know, uh, project. Um, and, and they found that in Kentucky, roughly 50% of the people in Kentucky consider themselves to be Christian. About 30% of the people in Kentucky belong to a specific church or denomination. Barely 13% of the people in Kentucky are in a church on any given Sunday. Those are the actual numbers right now. Now, if you compare those to the actual numbers from 10 years ago, drastic difference. You compare those to numbers from 50 years ago, huge difference. In Kentucky, and Jessamine County is really, really low on that list. Like, we have so many churches, and they all empty. Because, yeah, because in, yeah, in Jessamine County, it's less than 13% of the population. of the, There's, there's 51,000 people here. Less than 13% of the population are in church on any given Sunday. Doesn't mean they don't belong to some church. And they right, 30% of them belong to a church. Yeah, 30% of them belong to a church, but less than 13% of them are in church on any given Sunday. Because... Better things to do. There's better things to do, because moral therapeutic deism. Because be, because they can. There there are other things that they can do. Because there's other things that accomplish the same thing that church does from a Western American religious point of view. Do you see where I'm going with this? So when we sit down to read scripture, the 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 problem that we get into uh, is that we have we, we have two beliefs. Uh, ab- about scripture, and we have two beliefs that uh, that sort of guide our um, guide our interpretation. There's my next quote. All right. <clears throat> okay. The first of these beliefs that leads us to misread scripture is that the Bible applies to us. Okay. The second belief is that. <laughs> God is unchanging. Now, does anybody have a problem with either of those beliefs? The Bible applies to us. God is unchanging. Depends on how you're defining unchanging, but mm-hmm. I can go with it. But pretty much. Or applies to us. I'm not sure about that. Right. Basically, these are true. These are basically true. We are going to want to nuance some of the language there, but basically we look at those words and we're like, yes, the Bible applies to us. God is, God, God is, is unchanging. God doesn't change. Uh, otherwise, he's not God. Uh, the Bible applies to us. Otherwise, what's the point of having it? Um, so these are, these are basically true things. Where's the problem for us? The problem is, and, and we've sort of identified this already. Us becomes me. The Bible applies to me, and God is unchanging. And then what happens? What 
When we change us to me, the Bible applies to me, and God is unchanging, what happens? Whatever message God has for me is the message that God has for everybody. Right. Whatever message it is that God is conveying applies directly to me in all situations and in all contexts. And whatever message he has for me also applies to everyone else in every other context. So one of the, one of the things that happens is that this affects not just what I read, but this actually affects if I read. Okay? Because if we believe that what, what the Bible is saying applies to me, and I sit down with a passage of Scripture, and it is not readily apparent that this applies to me, what do I do? Move on. Move on. Put it down. Skip to the next bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For instance, now we're not, we're, uh, I'm not necessarily picking fun at our, at, at our, our lectionary, but I am a bit, okay? So <laughs> this week we did the parable of the lost sheep and, then we, and the parable of the lost coin. Now in Lent, we already covered the parable of the lost son. Awesome sauce. The next parable, it's still within the same group. Jesus sits down and then tells a series of parables is the parable of the dishonest manager. That's what I'm preaching on on Sunday. Woo! <laughs> it's exciting, y'all. The parable of the dishonest manager. Right? This is the one where the where the manager like goes behind his his boss's back and steals money and like gives his boss's money to other people so that after he gets fired, then he can go hang out with all of his friends and he's and, and he's good to go. Okay? Like we just skip over that because it's so weird and it's so foreign that we're like, that doesn't apply to me. So it doesn't really matter. It falls into this category in our minds, whether we consciously do it or not, of adiaphora, which means <laughs> stuff that doesn't matter, or apocrypha, which means things that, are th things that happen later on. Okay? We just stick it off to the side because obviously that doesn't matter, and who cares? Right? It just doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter to me why that happens or how that happens. So it doesn't just affect what I read, but it actually affects if I read. Okay, That's why it's always slightly shocking when you sit down with a group and somebody says, well, my favorite passage is from Ecclesiastes. Who has read Ecclesiastes in the last year? Not the last year. Mm -hmm. It's coming due again. Uh-huh. Yeah. The same goes with Job, usually. Like, there are these entire books of the Bible where if we didn't cover them in the lectionary, then it probably didn't get covered. Because it's one of those, it's one of those passages that is affected by the if I read. I'm like, oh, you know. I mean, with my mouth, I'm like, yes, it's all the inspired word of God, blah, blah, blah. Right? <laughs> but ultimately, in my heart and in my actual practice, it's not the same as Matthew. It's not the same as Romans. It's a different kind of a book. It's like a, you know, like who sat down this year and did a deep theological study of the book of Leviticus? I read it this year. I read it this That's year. That's what I read during Lent this year. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's a form of self-flagellation. of the Bible don't have the red letters. Right. So, the ones with the red letters are not as important. important. The other problem that happens is that we begin to confuse application with meaning. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't know. That was hard for me to understand. Mm -hmm. 
here's here, here's the, the the thing that it is. Okay, let's let's use we'll, we'll go down to our examples because they'll help us kind of explain that. I have plans for you, declares the Lord. Right. The passage has a meaning, and that meaning is God has a word to speak to his people Israel who are about to be chastised in ways that are staggering to our own imaginations. Okay? What, what happens is that we look at that passage and we say, well, how does that apply to me? And so instead of saying, what does this passage mean? God speaking to his people in, in their historical context, giving them a message in their context. What we do is we step in and we're like, I, I don't care about their historical context, and the meaning of the passage is not actually very important. What is important is what can I learn about God from that passage. And so we immediately just skip over the meaning of the passage and we, we go straight to application. And the trouble is that the application is still based on this question of me. It's this, it, it's, it's this how does it apply to me, not how does it apply to to us as a community at St. Aidan's, not how does, what, what is it that God is saying to God's people, and who are God's people in this context, and who are God's people in my context? So, so the, the, the question that's being presented here is, is, that, is that we are looking at these passages, and we are drawing, we're, we're, we're skipping over what the passage means, and we're saying this is, what the passage actually means is what it means to me. Right? I was in a, a, a study when I was uh, in, in high school where one of, the, one of the teachers drilled this into us, that it doesn't matter what it means to you, it matters what it means. Like that was the, that was the, the single guiding principle for reading the Bible. Um, it's not the way that the church reads her scripture. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to say that at, at the start. The church does not read her scripture by saying, what the passage means is what it means, and that's the only thing that it means. Okay? Um, you should know, you sh knowing me, you should know that that, 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 that but I'm going to say it anyway, just so that it's been said. Okay? Um, but the example that he used was the passage, when two or three are gathered together in, in my name, I am with them. Okay? Um, the passage is not referring to people who are praying. It's not a passage about prayer whatsoever. Jesus is not talking about prayer when he gives that particular instruction to his disciples. What he's talking about is discipline within their community, uh, how discipline is to be administered in their community. So what the passage means is God is saying that the way authority and discipline is meted out in the community is within the community. It's not one person you know, shaking a stick at somebody. It's not one person saying who's in and out. It's something that the whole community... Uh, is, is a part of. So when two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them. But it also means that when God's people speak, God is speaking. That makes us more more uncomfortable, doesn't it? We're like, hmm, I don't want to think about God speaking through the church. You know, because on the one hand, we're like, you know, you get these, like, you know, we, we end up looking like a Roman church. But on the other side, we've we've probably all at one point or time been in a religious context where somebody imagined themselves to be God's voice in our life uh, and and imagined themselves to speak with that kind of authority when they gave us advice, when they gave us instructions. You see what I mean? Like, we, we become very uncomfortable. And yet, that's what the passage means. Now, does the passage have a larger meaning? Is God speaking something 
to to the church in a larger context. Yes, absolutely. And I want you to think about the way that we read scripture when we do our new form of Bible study. Our 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 study Bible. Our is that what it? Yes, our study Bible method. Right. We begin by saying, "What does the passage mean?" And then we ask four important questions, which are. What's happening? What's happening? Where is Christ? Where is Christ? What is our hope? What is our hope? Where is the church? Where is the church? Right? So the passage is understood to speak to us in an entirely different way. But you'll notice that none of those questions is, what does this mean for me? Okay? The question is, where is Christ? And the question is, where is the church? And what is our hope? But not, what's my hope? Or where am I being saved? Or where you see what I'm, do you see where I'm going with this? Okay. So obviously, it's important for us to do application. But first, we need to understand the meaning, which is why when we read the scripture together as a church, the first question that we ask is, "What happens? What's happening here? What's what? What is it that's going on?" Now, in this chapter, they spend you know a, a chunk of time really. Uh, talking about these these other issues, okay? They talk about the the passage from Jer- Jeremiah twenty nine. The I know the plans that I have for you, uh, says the Lord, which is one of those just plans to prosper you. Plans to prosper you. And then place. Jeremiah ends up in a muddy it's a, pit right. for it's, two months. It's a it's a Hobby Lobby verse, you know, because because it's given to a people whose king is about to have all of his children murdered in front of him and then his eyes put out, so the last thing that he sees is their blood on his feet. Like, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Like, really? Right? Because here, here's, here's what happens, okay? When we confuse the application with the meaning, we end up ignoring the meaning of the passage altogether, and then what we do is we imagine that what it means to me is what it means. So this, this application, what it means to me, is what it means. And we imagine that we as individuals have a privileged place in God's plan. That we are special, unique snowflakes. Okay, We imagine that we have this special place, and that God's plan applies to me specifically, and I guess you guys too, because I like you most days. right? I guess you guys get in on it, but really it's about me. Okay? Ultimately, it's just me and Jesus. You guys can come along because you don't make my life awful. Um, but, but really, but really, that's that, that's really what it's about. Okay? And because we have taken these passage and we because we assume that rules apply universally, remember our discussion about rules versus <laughs> relations. Because we assume that rules have to apply universally, it also means that all of the promises that God makes in all of the scripture, because all of the scripture is just about me and Jesus, we then assume that all of the promises are interpreted literally and universally only about me. And then what happens? We all have too many descendants. We're, we're like, how many people can the earth sustain if everybody's descendants number the, the number of the, the, the stars in the sky? But what happens when, when the promises don't seem to come true? What happens when it's our sons dead in front of us and our eyes are being put out? Then suddenly we've put all of our hope and all of our, and all of our joy and all of our faith on this idea that, that all of those promises apply to me specifically, uniquely me, in this unique situation. Instead of, this is, these are God's words to God's people. Not God's words to you, but God's words to y'all. 
These are the things that God is saying about his church. Okay? This is a tough one, right? Because that's an uncomfortable thing to hear. Because we're really used to thinking that it's, you know, about me. And that I'm important. And that I'm unique and at the center of God's will. And we wouldn't phrase it that way. The, the, the authors do this great job of, of sort of rephrasing it for us. So let me read this passage to you, right? <clears throat> the sensibility might run deeper. Do we think, of course I would be on the stage when the world ends. He's talking about the eschaton here, but it doesn't matter. How could God stage such a dramatic event without me? Well, obviously we don't say it quite so bluntly. But the subconscious reasoning still runs this way. Of course the world couldn't end before I got here, but now that I'm here, why is there any reason for God to wait any longer? And when we state it that blatantly, we see that it's absurd. However, we should not miss that it was the driving... It, that, that it is the, it's driving our misreading of Scripture. It's the part of the iceberg under the water that sinks ships. Mm. Right? That's the problem with this. Because this center of God's will issue is ultimately, when, when we're talking about theology, this is the issue of Calvinism versus Arminianism. Okay? It's people asking the wrong questions. It's people imagining that the center of God's will is about me. And so it becomes a question of, well, did God choose me, or did he choose you, or did he choose both of us and not them? And that's not what the passage is about at all, because the promises aren't about you, and they're not about me. They're about us. It's about what God is doing in God's creation through God's people. The question for us is, how, how are we God's people? It's a question that every single denomination is going to answer differently. Okay? But the ultimate question that, that is there for us is, how are you and I God's people? As Anglicans, what would our answer be? When he talks about this idea of all things working together for good, it's another example of, of what's going on here, and it, and it drives at that same question that we're, that, that we're asking about. What does it mean for us to be at the center of God's will. Where is the center of God's will located? For us, we'd say that the center of God's will is located in, in Christ, and around Christ is his church. That that's the center of God's will. That the thing that God planned from the very beginning was for there to be Christ. That that was the point all along, because that was always intended. That the incarnation was always intended. Christ is the center of God's plan. That's the center of God's will. And so for you and I to be a part of being at the center of God's will means getting closer and closer to Christ. That's what it means for us individually. That's what it means for us corporately, as households, as a parish, as a, as a community, as a town, as a city. What it means for us to be near to the center of God's will is for us to be nearer and nearer to Christ, to be conformed into that image, to use Paul's language. Okay? So does God work all things together for good? No, because it's not what the verse says. What the verse says is, God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So, if those things are true, then yes, all things work together for good. But what it ultimately is saying is that in, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of destruction, in the midst of our own actual, real, tangible suffering, God is at work. 
And so there's a, the, the question is, is God perfecting creation in spite of my current pain and hardship? Because if, if, if I believe that all of God's promises apply to me actually right now, then I don't have any hope. Unless my hope is like a, a sort of psychotic thing, where I'm just like constantly like, no, it's, it's going to get better, it's going to get better, it's going to get better. It does, sometimes it doesn't get better. It didn't get better for, for, for Hezekiah. Not Hezekiah. What's his name? I've lost it. I think it's Zedekiah. Yes. It doesn't get better for him, for the, 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 the king from, from Jeremiah. All right, here's the problem anyway. Right. It doesn't get better for him. Right. <laughs> he doesn't brought away in prison. He, does, he doesn't know what the king's table looks like, but you know he gets he invited gets, there. He gets to eat. Yeah. Right. He's not a slave. Uh huh. Yeah. Exactly. He's not treated as a slave. He's treated as a as, as a prize. Yes. He's not a slave. He's a trophy. But this is a hard thing for us, right? Do you feel that tension in you? It's like I. Because there's something safe about being able to open up a passage, you know, and, and say, you know, this is, this is comfortable because this is, you know, God's promises to me. There's something safe about that. There's also something safe about hanging out in Revelation 21. There's also something safe and comforting about saying, I don't understand what's happening around me. But what I do understand is that in the midst of this, God is redeeming his creation. And in the midst of this, I can join him in that work. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be comfortable. It doesn't mean that we're going to be safe. Right? The, the entire first three centuries of the church attest to the fact that being a Christian is not safe, and it doesn't often lead to, to happy, comfortable lives. Right? Not your, your best life now. It doesn't look like that. Okay? This is a tough thing. This is really hard for this is this is what I'm saying about the farther we get like we're we're like let, can we go back to the surface again cuz it was really fun to like talk about, you know, different languages and you know who who used swear words in the Bible and whether or not Jesus had Everybody. teeth or not. Like all of those are like interesting discussions that the no, book had along good. the way. I was like, "Oh, that was fun. That was interesting. I never thought about it that way." But now we're at the heart of this and it's like there are parts of this that I'm just I hang on to because it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel comfortable. So how do we move forward? Flagellation. So you just ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't read the final chapter, the, the, the epilogue, go ahead and read the epilogue because it's delightful. Right? It's called... You know, four easy steps for for reading scripture well, and the authors basically just you know have this little story about laughing at you because that's not a thing. <laughs> they 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 put this book together, and then one of their students showed up, and she was like, "Yeah, that's a very sort of a, a Western way to do that." It's like, "Here's the problem. Let's find a solution," because that's how Western people do, right? We're like, "There's a problem. We're we're reading badly. Let's fix it," right? And so the authors are like, "You're not going to just fix it. That's that's not a thing." It, this is not just going to go away. Okay? They also point out something that I've, I've tried to point out along the way, which is that just because the culture of Scripture is different than ours doesn't make it better than ours. Okay? 
there are some ways where, where there, there, there are irredeemable qualities within our own culture. There are also irredeemable qualities within the culture of Scripture. Okay? Otherwise, God doesn't have to say at the end of the story, I am going to make all things new. Okay? It's important for us to recognize that. What we, what, what, the whole point of this is for us to understand that the world of Scripture is a different world than ours. And if we are not careful as we're reading, we will very often take suppositions, presuppositions of our own, take opinions of our own, assumptions of our own, these things that go without being said, and we'll just bring them into the text, and we won't ever really see and hear the things that God has for us to see and to hear in his word. So what are, what, what are the things that we can do to move forward? The first one is to just do that, to embrace complexity. To just say, you know what? This is really confusing, and this is really hard, and I'm not going to get it right all of the time. And to say that's okay. Along with embracing complexity, be teachable. Okay? We have to be, we, we can't allow ourselves to get cemented into a particular way of reading a passage of scripture. I want to read this quote to you because this is just brilliant. And if you've read it already, then you're going to hear it again. So there. It may be tempting to think that tricky biblical passages can be easily explained by appealing to just one of the cultural differences that we've talked about in these chapters. We suggest in chapter 5, for example, that the key to understanding the story of David and Bathsheba is an awareness of honor and shame dynamics in the text. But remember that in this book, we've simplified complicated matters for the sake of clarity. In many other stories, several different things may go without being said that affect our interpretation. Take the story of the three wise men in the account of Jesus' birth, for example. In Jesus' day, several things went without being said. First, people assumed that stars know things that people don't. It goes without being said for us, by contrast, that stars don't know anything because they're made out of hydrogen. <laughs> Remember that in chapter 7 when we talked about, about our, our assumptions about the world. Additionally, it goes without being said for us that God sent the star to the Magi. How else would they know of Jesus' birth? Which the text does not say. It went without being said for the Jewish audience, however, that God forbade from seeking guidance in the stars. But we typically ignore that point when we tell the story because it doesn't fit with our values. Third, we assume that since there are three gifts, there must have been three wise men. Our cultural mores dictate that everybody at the party brings a gift. But this is unlikely. In Jesus' day, three men traveling abroad with treasure would have been robbed. <laughs> Finally, since we misunderstand how God is involved, we assume that the wise men's journey must have been a good thing. After all, God works all things together for good. Therefore, we turn an event into a positive children's story, even though the outcome was that it nearly got Jesus killed, and it did indeed get a whole bunch of innocent babies killed. In other words, we have to be prepared to embrace complexity. Right? We have to be prepared to say, I'm going to read that passage again. You know what? I don't understand anything that happened in this chapter. And so this week, instead of moving on, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to read this page 
over and over again. When I do my gospel reading, I'm just going to stick on this page until I've pulled a bunch of things out. And maybe I'm going to get online later and I'm going to you know, see if there are some commentaries that I can access. Or maybe I'm going to wait until Wednesday and I'm going to sit down with, with, with people around you know, the dinner table or, or you know, before or after Bible study. I'm going to say, so I was reading this in... What, what's going on there? Has anybody read anything about that? Because you would be surprised what people in our community have read about these passages. Right? Somebody's going to be like, oh, that's my favorite passage in the whole Bible. I love the parable of the dishonest manager. That's the best of all the stories. That's the best parable. What are some other things that, that are going to help us as we go forward? One of them, we've, we've already said, is to, is to be teachable, to allow these stories to be taught to us, to allow ourselves to hear and to better understand these. Another one is one that we mentioned in a previous chapter, which is to read together more. Now, they mean a couple of things when they say this. They, they definitely mean that we, as a community, should be reading Scripture together. That's huge, okay? We need to be reading Scripture together. But it means something else as well. It means that we need to find ways to let the larger Christian community, especially the Christian community in cultures that are not American and not Western, to begin speaking to us in these particular areas. That's a hard one. Another thing that's worth noting is avoiding overcorrection. Okay? We hear this, we, we, we hear the, the, the passage talking to us about individualism versus collectivism. We're like, oh, well, we should just live in a, in a commune, right? Like, like, let's just, you know, let's go, let, let's go put, pool our money and we'll buy some property and we'll all just live on that together. And that, you know, it'll be, you know, maybe for some of you, that's what God has in store for you. I don't know. You know, if, if you want to be weird like that, then you can go ahead and be weird like that. But rather than, than just abandoning ourselves to, you know, to whatever the exact opposite of our culture is, the point of this is for us to, to be aware of our culture. Overcorrection, all right? The, 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 the point is not for us to say, well, whatever the West is doing is wrong. I'm going to go do the things that the East is doing. That's exactly the opposite of what we need to do. The whole point of this book is not for us to change our culture. The whole point of this book is for us to be aware of our culture. The whole book, this book is all about us becoming self-aware, recognizing that we have cultural values, that Scripture has its own values, and not forcing our cultural values into Scripture, but instead encountering Scripture as close to the way that its original hearers encountered it. That's the whole point of this. And so the authors mention, you know, that, that we might talk about how family values and, and the way that, you know, that collectivism works in, in Asia is awesome. But they point out that when Asians talk about American Christians, the thing that they say over and over again is, I wish that we were as generous as you guys are. Like, because that's not a, that's not a value that's built into their culture. Actual monetary generosity is not built in, in, into their culture. Whereas for us as Americans, we're like, yeah, I wish I could help you out more. Like, here's some money. Americans give incredible amounts of money. When you compare them to anywhere else in the world, Americans give incredible amounts of money just to help other people out. Okay? That's huge. That's awesome. That's a good thing. That's one of those ways that Christ is at work redeeming society. 
That's a good thing. So the, the goal here is not for us to, you know, just ditch everything, to throw out the baby and the bathwater, and then to end up over here. That's, that's not the point at all. The point of this is for us to be aware of our own culture as we sit down and read Scripture so that we can answer the first question, what is happening? Well, and then we can move on to finding where is Christ in this passage? Where is the church in this passage? What is our hope? Not my hope, our hope. All right? Are we all mostly clear on what we talked about tonight? Everybody a little bit uncomfortable? Yes. That's okay, too. <laughs> I want to take a moment to thank you for walking with me through this important book and for persevering through the technical difficulties that we faced. The fundamental question of this book, what goes without being said when I'm reading the Bible, has had a radical impact on my own spiritual life and has become a central part of our scripture study at St. Aidan's. Our parish uses what we call the study Bible method, a way of outlining and diagramming scripture to help us move past the superficial readings and dive deep below the surface to encounter God. If you'd like more information about this way of reading and studying scripture, I've put together a video explaining the process on our church's YouTube channel. Simply search for Study Bible Method, or St. Aidan's Nicholasville, or you can just follow the link in the description of this episode. And keep your eyes open next week as we take a brief look at the book of Revelation. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out anchor.fm forward slash thin dash places for more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment and join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Father is restored.